Let's turn back again to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation and chapter 2. So we uh, just began last week looking at the letters to the seven churches, or rather the prophetic messages, the, the royal decrees of Christ to his seven churches, uh, and sometimes maybe his covenant lawsuits against these churches, uh, but not so much with the church uh, that we will be considering this morning. But our text will be uh, verses 8 to 11, the letter to the church in Smyrna. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, let's pray for his help, and then we will consider it together. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us once again to have ears to hear by the help of your Holy Spirit, and then let us use them. Let us hear. Let us help us now to give our full attention to what the Spirit is saying to his churches, what Christ, the risen and triumphant Christ, says to us, his churches. Father, bless this word to our good, to our ability to endure, to persevere. By your grace, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the very earliest non-biblical pieces of Christian liturgy that we have available to us, uh, one that comes just from the latter part of the second century, so the late 100s, maybe the mid-100s even. So this is one of the earliest pieces of Christian literature outside of the the apostolic writings, outside of the, the inspired scriptures is a, a, a book, a document, entitled The Martyrdom of Polycarp. The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, it's the first of what would become a, a distinctive genre of Christian literature that we call martyrology. <laughs> it's a distinctive Christian form of literature. It's a, the story of the martyrdom of Christian men and Christian women. Uh, mentioned this morning, Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's uh, one in a long, long series of martyrologies. But this, one of the first pieces of Christian literature is that. It's already having to be telling the story of one of the earliest martyrs of the church outside of the scriptures. Uh, You might remember my recent mention of of Polycarp in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago. Uh, He was a mentor to another of the early church fathers, to Irenaeus, Uh, And he had been himself a disciple of the Apostle John, the very one whom, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing these words. 
He had known John. He had studied under John. He was a disciple of John, known and been taught by him personally. And he was also pastor of the church at Smyrna, the pastor of this very church, one of the earliest martyrs. He had no doubt read this letter to the church in Smyrna. Uh, It's likely, actually, that he had even been in the church when this letter was first received from John in his exile at Patmos. Remember, we've argued for uh, a later writing of the book of, of, uh, of Revelation, 96, 97 A.D., uh, Polycarp was martyred in the mid-first century, around 150 or so. And when he's martyred, he gives testimony to the fact that he has walked with Christ for 86 years. So it's very likely that he was born in Smyrna, he ministered in Smyrna, that he was part of the church when this letter arrived for the very first time at that church. According to the martyrdom of Polycarp, as Polycarp was being tied to the stake at which he would be burned, for refusing to worship the emperor and the other Roman gods. He said, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. The very pastor of this church to whom the book of Revelation is being addressed right now was the very embodiment of the exhortation that we find here. He was faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. This letter to Smyrna is is one of two of the seven letters that contains no rebuke, no accusation of sin, No threat of judgment. This church was suffering, but they had remained steadfast and faithful in the midst of their persecution. And yet, as with every believer in trials, there's always the danger that suffering will cause us to stumble, that it will cause our faith to waver, that it will tempt us to compromise in order to Make the pain stop. And so while while Christ has no word of rebuke for them, he does have words of exhortation, words of encouragement. Do not fear. Remain faithful. Endure and conquer. But he gives them more than just mere words of encouragement in suffering. Through these words, he actually gives these suffering Christians a firm basis for such encouragement. Right? It's not just be encouraged. It's, this is why you can be encouraged, to, to be faithful unto death, not to fear, to endure and to conquer. He gives a firm basis for that encouragement and a basis that is still a firm basis for our encouragement in times of suffering and especially in times of of persecution. Here Christ gives to them and to us encouragement from his cognizance of our suffering, encouragement from his control over our suffering, and encouragement from his conquest despite our suffering. 
So let's now hear what the Lord has to say to his churches, his words of encouragement to Smyrna, a suffering church. And the, the first encouragement that he gives is encouragement from Christ's cognizance of our suffering. Uh, cognizance, you can tell I chose the word for the sake of alliteration, <laughs> but I hope that it's helpful. But cognizance, it actually is a more precise term than you know, just awareness or knowledge of our suffering. But that's what we're getting at, that Christ was cognizant of the suffering of his people. And I know that sounds obvious. Of course, Christ was aware of it. Christ knew about it. But it is encouraging. It is important. And we see this, this emphasis on the cognizance, Christ's cognizance of the suffering of his people in just the, the very first words in the, the body of this letter to them. I know. Verse 9, I know. I know. What does he say? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Christ knows their tribulation. He knows their suffering. And he knows the, the precise nature of their suffering. And this is, I think, important and, and, and helpful to, to realize, to ask the question, well, you know, we talk about tribulation, we talk about suffering in general, but, but how exactly were these Smyrnan believers suffering? And Christ knows that. He doesn't just know in general that they are suffering, but he knows precisely how they are suffering. And he tells them that. He assures them of that. Right? In, in verse 9, there are two basic ways in which they are suffering. He says, I know your tribulation, general word for, for suffering, and your poverty and the slander of those that say they are Jews. Uh, those specific ways at this exact point that the, the, the church at Smyrna was suffering was in poverty and in slander. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize why that's important in, in a moment. Uh, when he mentions poverty here, uh, he's being literal. They were poor. They were economically destitute. They were struggling financially. They were struggling to meet their regular daily needs. Uh, their poverty is literal, but of course Christ assures them, but really, you are rich. And he means spiritually, eternally, and the things that really count, you are rich. It's interesting that he says this to the church at Smyrna. It contrasts with what he says to the church in Laodicea. In chapter 3, verse 17, For I say to you, or for you say, sorry, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And here you have the exact opposite. You have a church that is literally poor and yet spiritually rich. And you have a church that is literally rich, physically rich, but spiritually very, very poor. It's amazing to see how that often is the case. Right? Physical, material prosperity and ease um, tend to have that temptation along with it that we will become spiritually lax and spiritually lazy. There's times when, so we'll talk about one of the reasons why in his good providence Christ sometimes chooses to allow his people to suffer, to, to wean us off of the things of this world, to cause us to remember what is truly important, to reorganize our priorities. But he can say to this church, yes, you're physically poor, 
spiritually rich. And that in itself is an encouragement. This is, this is how you are actually. This is, this is the book of Revelation. We'll make this point several times again today. Again, what is the book of Revelation? It's that lifting of the veil. Right? It's, it's lifting beyond the mere surface meaning and appearance of things to the, the reality, the spiritual eternal realities behind that. And what does Christ say here? I see someone who's physically poor. The world sees them as physically poor. But how does God see it? How are they really, truly? They are they're rich. They're rich in, in faith, rich in, in grace, uh, rich in, in hope. But this poverty is, is no doubt due to, it's not just that they were poor uh, and just happened to be that way. It just uh, the church was made up of people who were already poor. But this poverty is tied to this particular tribulation, this particular affliction. Right? They were poor because of their testimony of the gospel, their testimony for Jesus Christ. And this is something that is very, very, it was very common in the early church in the Roman Empire and in Asia Minor, really in particularly where these churches were. Uh, most craftsmen, most tradesmen, most laborers belonged to a, to a trade guild. And those trade guilds controlled the trade within the city, within the region sometimes, and they were very heavily religious. Actually, in some ways, they were more political, but they were religious because they were trying to be political. Right? They wanted to prove to the Roman government and to the emperor that they were loyal citizens, and so they would get benefits. You know, it's not very different from how political situations tend to work still today. It really isn't. All these things are, are very, very similar. But what would they do? They would, they would have these religious festivals. They would sacrifice to uh, the, the emperor, to Caesar. They would sacrifice to the Roman gods to prove that they were loyal Roman citizens. And then they would get tax breaks. They would get preferential treatment uh, for, for their services and for their goods. Well, you can imagine in that situation how difficult it would be for a, a Christian who cannot participate in those things who cannot participate in, in the worship of a man, in the worship of false gods. And so many of them, and again, this is documented throughout church history, would be kicked out of their trade guilds, which means their, their whole career, their whole livelihood would be gone in a moment. Even if they weren't necessarily in a trade guild, they would be known as, as Christians in, their, in that area, and so their businesses would be boycotted. People wouldn't do business with them because they didn't want to be associated with them lest they be, uh, be considered, uh, you know, there's suspicion cast upon them that they were Christians as well. It was a very real way in which the early Christians suffered and were persecuted. It was economic. And that is very real suffering, right? To not know how you're going to feed your family, how you're going to provide for your daily needs. They were poor. Christ knew that. He knew their situation. He knew their suffering in that way. What was the other part of their affliction, their, their tribulation? He says, I know your poverty, and I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So this further persecution, not physical necessarily, not so much economic, but it was verbal. Right? There were slanders, there were false accusations being made against them, and here, apparently, specifically from unbelieving Jews in the city of Smyrna. And once again, what does Christ do? I know you're poor, but you're actually rich. Uh, those who are persecuting you say they are Jews. They're not really Jews. 
What's the implication? You are the true Jews. You are the true people of God. Right Again, as Paul says, a Jew is not one outwardly, and circumcision is not of the flesh, but the true Jew is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision of the heart. Right? That's the implication. This is, again, it's just lifting that veil, showing this is the reality. Now, these people, these unbelieving Jews, and who are so unbelieving, so adamant in their rejection of Christ as the Messiah, that they're now actively slandering and seeking to bring more persecution upon the Christians, many of whom were probably Jews who had converted to Christ in that area. Uh, we, we know that many unbelieving Jews did this. We see this in the book of Acts. And in this general area as well. Remember in, in Thessalonica, eventually, you know, Paul and his, his, uh, his tra- fellow travelers were, were chased out by a, a mob of Jews. They came to Berea, and the, the Jews there were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica because they actually took the scriptures and they compared them with what Paul was teaching. But what happens? Jews from Thessalonica hear Paul is doing the same thing in Berea, and they even send troublemakers down there to bring, uh, to, to kind of stir up a, a crowd, to stir up a mob against him. You know, something similar here. The, 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 the unbelieving Jews in Smyrna would slander, would bring false accusations against these Christians and probably slandering them to the Roman authorities so that the Roman authorities and maybe the trade guilds would bring that, that economic pressure or that political pressure upon them to conform, right? to, to give their, their pinch of incense to Caesar, to sacrifice and join in the religious festivals, which they could not do. We know that slander was a major part and a major cause of Christian persecution in the first century. And perhaps these Jews would slander them, saying that you know, these Christians, they're atheists, right? Because they don't believe in the Roman gods. Uh, another slander that they were uh, cannibals, right? Because they meet in these secret gatherings and they drink blood and they eat flesh. Uh, often horrible slanders and accusations of sexual immorality. Um, they call each other brothers and sisters and what's going on in those, in those secret meetings that they have. We know there was constant slander and that slander would just bring further and further suffering and economic trouble, social ostracization from their, their community and from their livelihoods. This was the, the way in which presently they were suffering. Now, it's, it's important, and I've made the point before, but you know this is how... The persecution of the church in many different cultures and societies throughout the age of the church, this is how it begins. Right? We normally just think of persecution as you're being slammed in jail, you're being beaten, you're being burned at the stake. No, how it generally begins is this way. It begins verbally. Right? It begins with slander. It begins with false accusations. Again, what are we seeing more and more in our own society? You know, Christians, Bible-believing Christians, being called bigots because they believe that certain sexual practices are sinful and against God's law and purposes. They're being called misogynists because they oppose abortion. You know, it's, it's slander. There are these false accusations. Um, no, we're not bigoted. We're not hateful. <laughs> we're not anti-women. Uh, but those are the, the accusations, the slanders that come. And then what do those slanders do? They generally will then bring about economic sanctions against people. And again, I, I believe, as, as I have reminded us, unless God intervene, it seems our culture is going more and more in this direction. You know, we begin to see the slander 
What comes next? It'll be economic penalties. It will be fines. It will be the removal of tax-exempt statuses from churches that won't toe the the, the line of of the the political authorities. Uh, It'll, you know, yeah, be be boycotts against Christian businesses. We already see and we already hear of these things. Now, again, we don't normally think of that as persecution proper, but that's very real suffering. That's very real persecution, verbal, economic, and then as we'll see, and even with the church at Smyrna, it will progress to imprisonment, to physical persecution, to martyrdom. This is exactly how the suffering church was experiencing this. I think, again, we need to learn lessons from that. Be, be prepared for these exact kinds of persecutions ourselves. But again, what's the point here? The point is, I know. Christ says to his churches, I know that this is what you are suffering. I know. I know the exact nature of your present suffering. But then he also, as I said, said uh, he knows of their future suffering and the exact Uh, nature of their future suffering. He says in verse 10, it's a remarkable verse, you know, I know what you're suffering presently. Do not fear. And and, and what what would we normally want to hear there? What would we normally expect? What would would prosperity preachers say here? You know, okay, well, it's all going to go away. It's all going to be better. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to be reversed if you just have enough faith. Now, this is a faithful church. And what does Christ say in his message of encouragement and comfort to them? He says, I know what you're presently suffering, and I know the severity of it. Don't fear of what's coming next, because it's actually going to get worse. It's not going to get better, at least in the immediate future. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's saying, I know even what's coming. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. He's about to throw some of you in prison. This was an escalation from just slander, verbal slander, from economic uh, sanctions, now to actual imprisonment. And imprisonment at this time wasn't so much what we think of now, just sort of, you know, wasting away in a jail cell for years upon end. It could be that sometimes. But what was imprisonment? It was generally to ensure that you can't run away because you're going to be put on trial. And you're going to be put on trial for something that is likely a capital offense. Imprisonment would mean, yes, you are in very real danger of losing your life. You won't sacrifice to our gods. You won't sacrifice to our Caesar, to our emperor. You won't declare that he is divine. You won't worship him as such. Well, you're treasonous. You're a danger to society. And so we're going to lock you away. We're going to put you on trial. We're going to burn you at the stake. We're going to crucify you. This is what Christ is saying to them. And of course, when he has to exhort them at the end of that verse, be faithful unto death. That's what he's he's revealing to them. Some of you are going to be imprisoned. And yes, some of you are even going to die for your testimony to the gospel, for your refusal to bow to the false religion and to the, the pressure. Christ is saying that. Of course, if Polycarp is one who heard this message, this would be the case with him, that he was going to be imprisoned. He was going to, it was all of these. He was slandered. He was ostracized. He was imprisoned. He was put on trial, false accusations against him. And he was burned at the stake because he refused to worship the emperor and the Roman gods. 
So Christ knows the exact nature of their present suffering. He even knows the exact nature of their future suffering. But he also knows uh, the real source of their suffering. The real source of their suffering. And I think this is, this is helpful. Again, what, what is he? He's lifting the veil. He's showing the reality behind the surface, beneath the surface. And he reveals the deeper spiritual warfare that is behind all of it. If you notice there, this is for the first time in the book of Revelation, not just one, but two references to the great enemy, the great enemy. You know, again, who are these Jews that are slandering them, these false Jews who are slandering them? Well, they're really a synagogue of Satan, right? Ultimately, that is who they are serving, that's whose bidding they are doing in their opposition to Christ and to the the Christians and to the gospel. And then he says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. <laughs> right again, who's actually physically doing the, the throwing into prison? Well, it's the Romans at the instigation of the Jews. But who's behind the slander of the Jews? It's Satan. Who's behind the Romans throwing them into prison for the sake of the gospel? It is the devil. And again, he's reminding them there is spiritual reality and spiritual warfare and conflict that is behind and underneath all of this. Christ is revealing that. This is the real source behind this persecution that you're suffering. It's just a reminder to them of what's really at stake. It's not just the physical suffering. This is spiritual. It's of eternal significance. What is Satan? What is the devil trying to do through this persecution by means of these unbelieving Jews and Romans? He's trying to get them to renounce their faith. He's trying to get them to, uh, to, to deny their Lord. And to to give up their hope is the ultimate goal of the enemy. To get us to abandon God, abandon Christ. It's it's like Job, right? That's another place in which we see, okay, who's the the real kind of instigation behind the suffering? Now, as we'll see, of course, we'll be reminded even here, Christ, God, is ultimately in control of all of it, even of Satan and, and what he's doing. But we see it's Satan. It's the accuser who comes and who uh, instigates this, this incredible suffering upon Job. And what is his goal? He wants Job to deny God. He wants him to curse God. He wants him to hate God and renounce his faith, renounce everything that goes along with it. Well, so that's, that's what Satan and his hosts are seeking in the persecution of Christians. In the days of the church of Smyrna, still today and throughout all of the ages. That is really what's going on. That is the the true reality beneath and behind it. Now again, this is a sobering message to the church at Smyrna. But where's the comfort? Where's the encouragement in the midst of their suffering? It is Christ's cognizance of it. Again, I know. I know what you are enduring. I know what you're going to endure. I know it all. He knows our suffering. He knows our suffering more than anyone else. You think, I mean, even our, our dearest friends, even our spouses and our family members, when they're suffering, they can't even see all that goes along with that. Not just the external, but the internal suffering that accompanies all of this. No one else can see that, can know that. But what does Christ say? I know it. I know it. I see it. Well, it's not just that he knows it intellectually. But who is this that is speaking? This is Christ, the God-man. He knows our suffering experientially. He himself has endured the deepest of suffering that humanity can ever experience. 
And this is the, the assurance, this is the comfort that's given in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. Because he has suffered, he is able to sympathize with us. He has suffered as one of us, as a human being. Physically, emotionally, socially, he has experienced all of it. Economically, he has experienced all of those kinds of sufferings. And so he knows, not just even intellectually, but experientially, so he can sympathize with us, but even more than just sympathize with us, as comforting as that is, well, he is able to, to succor us. He's able to help us. Right? It's not just that Christ, as that sympathetic high priest, knows how we feel in our suffering. He knows exactly what we need in our suffering. And he is able and ready and willing to give it if we but come to the throne of grace and ask for what we need in that time of need. He knows how we feel. He knows what we need. Because he knows. He knows the suffering. And that is a great encouragement to us, a great comfort in our suffering. So first basis for this encouragement, it's encouragement that's offered from Christ's cognizance of our suffering. His awareness, his knowledge of it. So those first two words, but, but great comfort in it. Well, secondly, there is also encouragement that's offered from Christ's control over our suffering. Again, not just his cognizance of it, but his control over our suffering. Now, now yeah, I think not only did he knows, he's in complete control over all of it. And of course, that's true. We know it to be true, just like we know Christ knows all of our suffering. You know, we know you know, Christ is in control of all of our suffering. But again, how often do we forget that in times of trial, in times of suffering? How often do we just fail to appreciate that and apply that in our lives? Yes, Christ knows. It's great comfort. Christ is in control of all of it as well. But, but where do we see this here? Where do we see Christ as, as in control of all of this? Well, at several points and important lines and phrases. In verse 8... Remember, I, I've made the point a couple of times that even the titles that Christ gives himself in these letters, they're not arbitrarily chosen. They're chosen specifically to help in the, the, the specific context and, and problems within these churches themselves. And they all, again, hearken back to that opening vision of the, the resurrected reigning Christ in, in chapter 1. Well, how does he choose to identify himself to the church in Smyrna? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last. The first and the last. Again, this echoes verse 17, which is interesting. We see Christ give a, a similar exhortation to John. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, <laughs> fear not, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Remember when we, I know there were so many elements of that uh, opening vision, but, but again, that terminology, it, it, it comes from the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah. And when Yahweh himself would identify himself as the first and the last, as the beginning and the end, the point in the context that he's making is that he is sovereign over all of history. Right? He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything in between. He not only knows it, he has decreed it all. And he is in control of every last detail from the first to the very last. And everything in between is driving toward the accomplishment of his promises and his purposes at the last. And yes, that includes our suffering. Christ is in control of all of it. And in control of all of it, ultimately for the final deliverance of his people. 
again, he doesn't promise a physical, necessarily a physical deliverance. Even the continuation of physical life, he doesn't promise he's going to deliver them from some of those who will die. But he's saying, I'm in control of all of it, and I will bring it all to the, the fulfillment of my purposes, to your ultimate, true, spiritual, eternal deliverance, even if not your physical, earthly deliverance. But he's emphasizing that. It's, it, he is the first and the last. He's in control of all things, including our suffering. Also, we see Christ's control in a couple of key phrases in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And we haven't mentioned that yet, but for ten days you will have tribulation. You know, what does this mean? Does it mean literally only for ten days? Um, doubt it. (laughs) Ten days isn't very long, and this tribulation he's preparing for them seems to be something significant, including imprisonment, including, yes, even death for some of them. Now, most see an allusion here to Daniel chapter 1. Now, again, we've seen how many times Daniel is in the background of all of this, but in Daniel chapter 1, what do we see? We see Daniel and his friends, and uh, they're being told that they need to eat from the king's food and drink of his wine. Daniel knows that that would be defiling for him according to the Old Testament laws and uh, and so he refuses. There's a real possibility that refusing to participate in idolatry in that way uh, could lead to his, his neck being on the line. But what does he ask? He asks for a testing period in which they'll eat water and vegetables and they'll trust that God will will cause them to be healthier and stronger than the others. And how long is that testing period? It's 10 days. <laughs> so there might be an allusion back to that. But ultimately, what does it signify? I think in general, even 10 days is a significant period of time, but it's also a, a limited period of time. I think in general, if anything, that's that's... That's what Christ is communicating. It's going to be 10 days. It's going to be a significant period of time, but it will end. It will be limited. And what does it mean? Christ is in control of that. He's in control of the severity of the the suffering. He's also in control of the duration of the suffering. And again, he's going to bring about his purposes at the end of it for 10 hours. It's interesting to see how the book of Revelation will do this with numbers and we'll see it over and over again. That sometimes when you look at the same period that's being described, but it's being described with different numbers. Uh, one point to give a little bit of this away and just be looking for is I believe uh, at many times where Christ talks about the, uh, the, uh, the suffering that is coming upon the church. That it's for a time, times, and half a time. It's for that uh, three and a half years or that three and a half weeks, you know, whatever that might be. Uh, but it's that three and a half period. Well, I think it's describing the same period as the thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. But he's saying, well, from the perspective of the ruling and reigning of the saints, this is a long period. From the perspective of the tribulation and suffering of the church, it's a it's a short period <laughs> in comparison with the, the glory and of, of all the reigning. But we'll see that. And I think that's what Christ is, is saying here. It's going to be a substantial period of time, but it is limited, and I am in control over what that duration will be. But there's also, and I think uh, 
one of the most significant phrases that shows us Christ's control over our suffering. We read right past it, but it's there in chapter 10 as well. That you may be tested. That you may be tested. And what does this show? This shows Christ's purposes in, in allowing this suffering to happen and purposing this suffering for his church. Right? We, we've seen how you know, the unbelieving Jews are involved in, in this suffering, this persecution. We've seen how the Romans were involved in the suffering and persecution. Was this their purpose, to test these Christians? No. <laughs> it was to silence them. It was to, to you know, take their stuff oftentimes. Um, he's, we've seen that Christ says, well, even behind and beneath that, it's, it's Satan. It's the devil. Is that his purpose, to, to test these believers? No, it's to, it's to trip them up. It's to cause them to stumble. So whose purpose is this? It's Christ's purpose. Again, shows that, yeah, there's that deeper reality of, of even Satan and his hosts involved in this persecution. But even deeper behind that and ultimately behind that is Christ and the fulfillment of his purposes. He is in control over our sufferings. He's even in control of Satan and his work in, in bringing those sufferings to believers. Again, even Satan sometimes means these things for our evil, but God uses them and overrides them for our good. There's no greater example of this than the gospel itself. You know, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's the moment that it seemed of Satan's greatest triumph. And yet, what was it in the purposes of God? It was his own defeat. <laughs> it was his own defeat. Uh, I think that's what Paul talks about. If the princes of this age had known it, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. He's not just talking about the Roman princes. He's talking about these spiritual princes. They didn't even know. They didn't even understand. Satan himself. And so Satan himself, even in persecuting or in inciting humans to persecute Christians, Christ is in control of all of that, and he is purposing it for our good, that we might be tested. Again, think of Job. <laughs> this is what we see with Job. It was to test him, to prove his, his loyalty to God, his faith in God. But not just prove it, but to strengthen it and deepen it, which absolutely happens by the end of, of Job's trials. And of course, this is teaching of Scripture. Yes, Christ tests his people you know, for, for good purposes, for, his own, for multiple good purposes. And perhaps even to reveal to ourselves what is within our heart, that we might know it and we might be able to address it. He does it, of course, to, to strengthen our faith. I mean, very familiar passage, but it is worth reminding ourselves of again. Of course, in James, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because that leads to your strengthening and your purification. But also, um, probably most famously, 1 Peter chapter 1 Verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, right? In your hope, in your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? The, the refining fire of this testing. Right, that it purifies. Right, it is there to remove impurities. It is there, as I, I mentioned, even though you know some of us we, we've we've known great material wealth and prosperity and ease for so long. 
For us, God brings times of persecution to reveal to his own people and to expose our idolatry, our materialism, to to loosen our our grasp on the things of this world and of this life. But it's there also to, to strengthen our faith, to purify it and strengthen it. And ultimately what? So that it may be found to praise and honor at the coming of Christ for his own glory. And that as he does that work in his people and this severe trial, this persecution doesn't trip them up. It actually strengthens them. And at his coming, that's more honor and glory and praise to him, the one who brought that all about. Again, like Job. There's encouragement from Christ's cognizance in our, uh, of our suffering. There's encouragement from Christ's control over our suffering. He is in control of all of it, and it is all that we might be tested. Tested, And that testing itself to bring about the strengthening of our faith, the purification from our sins, and his glory. There's encouragement from those. There's encouragement, finally, from Christ's conquest despite our suffering. Encouragement from Christ's conquest despite our suffering. This church in Smyrna gets two promises of blessing. We've seen that's one of the regular features of these, uh, these, these letters. They actually get two. If they persevere in faith through this suffering, they get two promises of, of blessing. But actually, I think meaning really symbolizing the same thing. In verse 10, be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I'll give you the crown of life. Now, words that are sometimes translated crown in Scripture, and the, even within the book of Revelation, there's two different Greek words for crown. Uh, there is this one, Stephanos. That's where we get Stephen from. Uh, Stephanos. Uh, and there's the word diademata, the diadem. Uh, this is, is not diadem. Diadem is the crown that Christ wears. It represents royalty and regal authority, right? It's a kingly crown. The Stephanos, this crown, is is actually and originally that wreath of leaves. And it was given to victors. It was given to those who, who won, whether in a battle, so generals would be crowned with a Stephanos, they were conquerors, they were victors, or even in athletic competitions. Right? The Olympics are going on right now. In the, in the Roman games, uh, the one who won in athletic contest was given a Stephanos. So it's not so much a symbol of royalty as it is a symbol of victory. Amen. It's a symbol of victory. And what is this victory? What is this reward for overcoming, enduring in the suffering? It's life. It's the crown of life. You are rewarded. You are crowned with life, with eternal life. And again, you can see the, the, the irony here. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know, physical death, but eternal life. And it's the irony of this. Uh, what seems to be the Christian's defeat, you know, they're burning at the stake, they're martyrdom, is actually their victory. In God's eyes, in the reality of things, when the veil is lifted, what seems to be defeat is actually victory. What seems to be death is actually life, is eternal life. One of the greatest of those blessings of our hope that we look forward to. Uh, and then, of course, finally in verse 11, The one who conquers, which as we've seen means to persevere, means to endure, 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He's saying, yes, some of you are going to die. That's the first death. It's physical death. But you can never be hurt then by the second death. We get the second death defined for us later in the book of Revelation. We don't have to speculate about it in chapter 20. In chapter 20, uh, verses 14 and 15, after the, the great final battle and the final judgment, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death. That's eternal. That's final. That's total death. But even the one who dies physically dies the first death, but they die faithfully. They die holding fast to their faith and their confession, their testimony, their witness to Jesus Christ. They have nothing to fear from the second death. Nothing at all. In fact, their death is keeping in this irony and this lifting of the veil, showing the reality is often the opposite of what it seems. It's implied later in chapter 20 as well that the believer's first death is actually his resurrection. <laughs> it's actually his coming into true and eternal life. The first resurrection. But it's this reward. There's this promise of eternal life. If you give up life now, if you endure suffering now, you'll be rewarded with eternal life and blessing later. And how can Christ guarantee this? Can he guarantee that those who endure will conquer, will overcome, even despite their suffering. He does this because he can guarantee this because he himself has done this very thing. And he has done it for us. The second title he gives to himself in verse 8, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. And of course, this is also an allusion back to chapter 1, verse 18. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. <laughs> I can deliver from death. I can give eternal life because I myself have conquered death and overcome. And because he suffered and died for us, because he rose again, then so shall we. But again, that shows us what we are to expect in this life. Not prosperity, not, not ease, not problem-free. We are, like Christ, to expect suffering and, yes, death. But like Christ, because Christ has done that for us, we too will rise again. The one who died and yet who came back to life. We need to believe this. We need to trust alone in that, in that death and resurrection on our behalf, his suffering, death and resurrection. And we need to persevere in our faith in that. Because no matter what we suffer presently, it will be far worth it. As Paul says, the sufferings of this present age aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. We will all in this life encounter a degree of persecution and suffering. At times, that has been greater at times that has been lesser. As I'm reminding us, it's very possible that worse persecution is coming for the church in the West. We have enjoyed long years of peace and prosperity and ease. But unless God intervene, our culture, our society is rapidly, rapidly turning 
against the truth of God, against his law, and against his gospel, which is what we exist to proclaim. And so worse might be coming. How will we endure? How can we face that without fear? How can we remain faithful even to death? How can we be encouraged in our suffering? This letter shows us we can be encouraged because of Christ's cognizance of our suffering. No matter what we suffer, he knows. And he not only knows intellectually, but experientially. He can sympathize and he can help in our suffering. We can be encouraged by Christ's control, the knowledge of Christ's control over our suffering. He is working all of it. It's not outside of his control. Even Satan himself is under the control of Christ, the first and the last. And he is working it all out for our good and for his glory. We can be encouraged from Christ's conquest despite our suffering. He himself overcame suffering and death and rose again. And so he promises to all who trust in him and who hold faith in that, uh, who hold fast to that faith. Likewise, even if they suffer, even to the point of death, physical death, they will get the, the crown of life. The second death will not be able to hurt them. They, like him, will rise and conquer. He who has an ear to hear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God give us all such grace to overcome in our suffering. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these encouraging, encouraging words. We pray, Father, that we will be encouraged in our suffering of many kinds, but particularly of any persecution that we might be facing in the near future. We're thankful that you know it all, you have purposed it all, and you have overcome it all already in Jesus Christ. As we partake of the Lord's Supper now, we pray, remind us of his death, of that that very basis of the hope that we have, his death for us, but his overcoming, triumphing over death and his resurrection. We pray in his name to his glory. Amen.